Okay. This morning, like I said earlier, this is the second Sunday of Lent. And as such, we are going to continue our series looking at some big things that we might be better off letting go of. And today we're going to be talking about the idea of expectations. Now, expectation is the idea that something will, or more often the case, should happen according to what we think. You know, expectation is sometimes rooted in the idea of experience. For example, if I see some big, nasty, dark clouds rolling in, I have the expectation that rain will come. Or more, more realistically, if you're like me and have a weird old man knee, anytime my left knee aches, I can expect there's going to be rain. Now, why do we have these expectations? Well, because in the past, we have seen a cycle and it's proven to be true. We've noticed a pattern, and so we assume this pattern will continue. But what happens when this pattern is broken? Well, it normally leaves our expectations unfulfilled. Now, sometimes this can actually be a good thing. Think of a really good movie. A movie that masterfully knows how to build expectations and then skillfully change things to break those expectations. Those can be really, really good. Think of movies like Fight Club, Shutter Islands, all the Oceans movies, you know, things like that. Those are really fun and play with the idea of expectations really well. But sometimes when our expectations are not met, we get mad and we sometimes feel cheated or misled. And if we're going to stick with movies, a very memorable example for me in this category is a movie called The Bridge, Bridge to Terabithia. This is a movie that was marketed and billed as a kind of fun kids fantasy adventure. Something similar to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Just kind of a lighthearted romp. You know, there, there could be some deeper meaning inside, but it's all going to be wrapped in a fun package. This movie, Bridge to Terabithia, is in no way a fun romp. It is actually a surprise gut punch dealing with issues of childhood death, loss, and mourning. Now, upon release, this movie got some a lot of hate right away. And this is understandable, because when you go into a movie expecting something closer to Disney's Bedknobs and Broomsticks and are actually presented with something like Beaches, the anger is going to be understandable. But over time, people have kind of come around in this movie and actually see that, you know, it, it is a good movie in and of itself. But that's mainly come because our expectations of what this movie is have changed. Now, these kind of movie examples are really just dumb, fun examples of what expectations can do. But what happens when our expectations are magnified, when they're taken into more important realms? What happens when you import expectations onto other people? Well, I expect this person will react or do this. Or I expect this group of people to do this. Then we get into a place where expectations can really morph into prejudices. And then that can lead to racism, sexism, ageism, and a host of other things. 
expectations can set up situations where we're not on the same page with someone before we've really even met them. It can create situations where we're really set up for failure before we even have a chance to get going. Now, there is a, I don't want to say good, but a prime example of this in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles with me, please turn to the Gospel of John. And we're going to start reading in chapter 3. So here we have the, the story is an encounter of a man named Nicodemus coming to Jesus and asking him some questions. Now we're told that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And uh, the Pharisees, they were a religious sect of Judaism at this time, around the first century, that were formed to combat what they saw as religious corruption. They saw the religious system having been skewed over the past decades, and so created a group to try to right that. And they did this by really strict observance of the laws of Moses. Because there was the idea that if we can create a pure Israel, then that's how we'll receive God's promises. Now, many people in this group were the religious and theological leaders and experts of their time. So, Nicodemus, a man from this group, is coming to Jesus with questions. So let's see how this conversation plays out. So again, I am reading from John chapter 3. I'm starting at verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with them. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. So even from the very beginning here, we see that Jesus and Nicodemus, they're not really on the same page. Jesus mentions being born again, and Nicodemus is really befuddled. How, how can someone be born again? Is this some kind of weird Benjamin Button situation? Is old Brad Pitt about to jump out at us? You're like, what's going on here? Now for us, it can be easy to mock Nicodemus here. How could he think that Jesus was talking about literally being born again? Of course he is using this as a metaphor for spiritual renewal and awakening. That's obvious. Well, that's obvious to us because we have 2,000 years of literature explaining and talking about this metaphor to us. So when we hear Jesus talk about this, we're conditioned to know exactly what he means. Nicodemus doesn't really have this advantage. And so Jesus goes on to try to explain a little bit more what he means. So I'm going to pick up here in verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell from where it comes or from where it's going. 
so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe when I speak to you of heavenly things? So I feel like Jesus is maybe a little frustrated here. And maybe that's just me kind of reading into it. But I feel like Jesus is kind of exacerbated, almost saying, Bro, you're supposed to be the expert here. How are you not getting this? Well, let's think about it. Why is Nicodemus not understanding? I think a large part of it comes down to expectation. Because remember, this passage opens by telling us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So it's setting up kind of his mental capacity, his mental mindset coming into this conversation. Because the Pharisees put a lot of stock in the law and fulfilling the law. The idea being that that was how you made a pure Israel, and so that was how God's promises would come to pass. That's how the Messiah would come. And even their idea of the Messiah, there's an expectation of what they're going to get. There are a lot of prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, that talk about the Messiah coming in and establishing a great kingdom, freeing the people. So naturally, if you're living in a world dominated by empires conquering empires, when you think about the Messiah establishing a kingdom, you assume it's going to be through war. I mean, up to this point, really, the history of the Israelites is the history of empires dominating them. You have, you know, them exiled in Egypt, coming out of Egypt, establishing their own foothold, only to be conquered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and now the Romans. So, your natural assumption is that you're, if you're going to be free, it's going to have to come through war. If you think about the idea of, I'm going to be free, that the current ruling power over you, in this case Rome, is going to have to be dealt with. So, they're expecting a powerful warrior king. Something akin to the image of David. This brutal warlord this brutal expert in the military tactics to come in and free everyone. Because that's what they're used to. That's what they've seen. That's what's in their history. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what Jesus is planning to do. And so finally, Jesus addresses this misconception head on. He does this starting in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus 
is really hitting at the idea that you're using the wrong Old Testament image. You're, you're creating the wrong parallel here. You're looking for a David. You're looking for someone hardened by battle. You're looking for a warlord. But you should be looking at the Brass Serpent. Now, the Brass Serpent, or Bronze Serpent, depending on how you're looking at that is talked about here comes from the Book of Numbers. And this is a story where the people complain against God. They're in the middle of their exodus, they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they complain against God. So God sends a plague of venomous snakes to them. Which, by the way, that is the stuff of nightmares. That is absolutely terrifying, and I do not want to think about that much, but there's that. So the snakes, they're, they're venomous, so they are killing the people. The people are dying left and right. So what Moses does is he crafts a bronze snake, a bronze statue of a snake, and attaches it to a big pole and puts it up above the people so they can see it. Anyone who looks at that snake is saved and doesn't die because of their snake bites. So the bronze snake takes away the punishment, takes away the punishment of the snakes, and thereby saves the people. Jesus is saying that he's going to do the same thing, that he's going to take the punishment from the people and thereby save them. Now, notice what the bronze serpent does not do. The bronze serpent doesn't come down and kill all the actual snakes biting people. It just saves them. It takes the punishment of these bites for the people. And this is at odds with how Nicodemus thinks or understands a Messiah. Nicodemus thinks that the Messiah is coming to judge and to condemn those for not following the law, those who are not pure. When in fact, Jesus just straight out actually says the exact opposite. He says that he has come not to condemn, but to save. In short, Jesus is saying that what Nicodemus thinks of about a Messiah is wrong. Nicodemus and most people at this time have a very specific picture or understanding of what the Messiah should do. And Jesus is doing none of it. Jesus leads no military revolutions. He musters no army, and he kills exactly zero Romans. So how could he be the Messiah? Well, it's not that Jesus was not their Messiah. It's that Jesus was not the Messiah they expected. It's kind of like that Batman line, right? Where Jesus was not the Messiah they, they uh, deserved, but he was the Messiah they needed. Everyone around looked around and thought that they knew what God was going to do. Because they knew exactly what they would do if it were up to them. They looked through their history and they saw a pattern of great military judges, great warlord kings, and amazing military leaders. And they thought, well, this is how God's going to do things. But God looked at that same history and saw mere shadows of what could be.
God looked at that history and saw failure. Saw failing to live up to meet the expectations of what true redemption was. And so, we can see that Nicodemus is having trouble. He's having trouble because he has expectations of God. Now, how often do we run into trouble for the exact same thing? We have an idea of what God should do. Or we even have an idea about how exactly what God should do and how it should play out. Because we know what we would do. If we were in the situation and we were in charge, we know exactly how we would fix it. So why wouldn't God do the same thing, right? I mean, if I can think of this, then of course God should be able to think of it, right? We're on the same playing field, right? Now, when you actually say it, you know that sounds weird and silly, right? You know that's not how it works. Yeah, I, absolutely God knows better than I do. Yet, at the same time, again and again, we impart our own expectations onto God. And we get disappointed when God doesn't live up to our own expectations, our limited capacity mindset of what God should do. How many of our own personal struggles are a direct result of us imparting our own expectations onto God? Now, bring this even down to a human level. How much of what is wrong in the world today comes from us imparting our own expectations onto others. And then we jump to large-scale assumptions when those expectations aren't met. But we, as humans, I think it's safe to say we're naturally lazy. We want to take shortcuts. We love creating patterns so we don't have to critically think as much. And it can serve us well, but it can also hurt us. We love to create mental shortcuts. Person A was rude to me. Person A was a redhead. So that must mean that the, there's a pattern I can make in my head that all redheads are rude. This creates a false expectation for our next encounter. And sometimes these are expectations that we don't even realize we've set. We don't even fully realize we've made this correlation in our heads. But these are correlations and expectations that can shift the dynamic of future encounters long before they ever happen. And that can lead to situations like what played out in Georgia a little over a year ago, where Ahmaud Arbery was gunned down, jogging down the street. The root of this tragic event is expectation. It is expectation that led to prejudice. So how do we address expectation? How do we let go of expectation? Well, I think first, if we're looking at the God level, we have to realize that God is probably smarter than us and has a better idea of what's going on than we do. God has a bird's eye full view of our lives that we just don't have.
And so what we think God should be doing is probably not going to be what God is actually doing. What God actually plans to do, because God has the full view in mind. Whereas we can see, you know, five minutes ahead, maybe. God can see the whole view. So we have to stop importing our own mental capacity, our own mental state, onto God. A second, at the human level, we need to realize that much of what we expect out of others is based on misconception. We create false narratives in our mind about those around us. We have to stop importing our own mental state, our own experiences onto others, because all that does is create frustration, which leads to deeper set expectations of people, which then leads to prejudice when then just leads to worse and worse things. We have to work to live our lives around the notion of God's expectations. And those are straightforward. And those come with more grace than we could ever imagine. Those expectations are pretty simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor like yourself. And there is so much grace worked in to those expectations. And that's what we need to focus on, clinging to that grace, that wonderful, amazing grace. That is how we can let go of expectations, by falling back on the grace of God in our lives and extending that grace to those around us. Join me as we pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you that you are a God who continually reaches your hand out to us. And so we just ask that we could have the strength to grab that hand. We ask that we would have the strength and the understanding to trust in you, to not try to impart our own expectations our own limited capacity onto you. We would just ask that you would give us that seed of trust, that we could drop away our expectations of you. We could lose our misconceptions about what you want for our lives. Because what you want for our lives is so much bigger and so much better than we could even expect. And Lord, we ask that we could help impart that same grace to those around us that we could not put up false walls of what we expect out of others. About, oh, this person will do this. This person will do this. We ask that you would give us grace to see past those misconceptions, to see past those false expectations, to look at people as you see them, as your children, as images of you, our divine God, our divine parent. And so, Lord, we just ask that as we move forward today, you could help us tear down these expectations. You could help us just release these preconceived notions we have of you, of other people, even of ourselves, Lord. We just ask that you would go with us, bless us, and keep us safe. In your precious name we pray. Amen.